I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Damien Barr on his stunning debut novel, You Will Be Safe Here. Damien Barr is an award-winning writer and columnist. Maggie and Me, his memoir about coming of age and coming out in Thatcher's Britain, was the BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week and Sunday Times Memoir of the Year, and won the Paddy Power Political Books Satire Award and Stonewall Writer of the Year Award. Damien writes a column for High Life and often appears on BBC Radio 4. He is the creator and host of his own literary salon, which premieres work from established and emerging writers. And you will be safe here. What we're going to talk about today is Damien's debut novel. Damien, welcome to Little Atom. Thank you for having me. So how would you describe You Will Be Safe Here, first of all? It's a novel of connected parts set in South Africa and it's all in South Africa and the earliest parts of it are from 1900 and the most recent parts of it are from about 2016. So we're covering about 116 years of history but it's actually quite a short book and it really follows uh, one family or two families um, without giving too much away over the course of that time. So um, from the Boer War all the way through to post-apartheid South Africa. Why this subject matter? What was the inspiration for it? For the for the entire novel? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't planning on writing a novel when I started, when I, I started it. I wasn't, I was thinking I might do a piece of journalism about a, a story that I had come across in the Telegraph. Um, it was a story about a boy called Raymond Boyce who had been sent to a uh, camp, a uh, safari training camp just outside Johannesburg by his mother and his stepfather. Um, and this place was run by former soldiers in South Africa and it was brutal and horrific and that boy was murdered there. Um, and I was obsessed by the story of what happened to this boy because he looked like a boy I had known in my childhood, who looked like a boy who'd come to my school in Scotland, in South Africa, and who'd gone back then, who I'd never seen before. And I became obsessed by the story of what happened to this real-life boy, and I thought I might do a piece of journalism. You know, what was this place that he was sent to? Why was he sent there? Who ran this place? What were they really trying to do to the boys who died there? Because actually, three boys died there, I discovered. And this story about this camp, this contemporary camp, led me to the historic camps in South Africa, which were created during the Boer War, the Second Boer War. Um, These were created by the British, and they were concentration camps, and it's the first time concentration camps is used widely 
as an expression in English. And it's really weird seeing it in official government reports of the day, in Hansard, in newspaper reports. And there were at least 49 of these white concentration camps because white people and black people were separated and there were also at least 49, but probably many more black camps. And more women and children died in these camps uh, than soldiers died in the war. So it seemed to me like there was a really clear connection between the historic camps and the present camps and one that wasn't perhaps immediately obvious. And so I wanted to write about both of them and to write about the difficulties and horrors of both of them, but also to write about the strange opportunities that they presented. Sarah and Fred, in the first part, Sarah's the the mother of Fred, um, and they're on Mulberry Farm, and Samuel, the father, is out fighting. And, you know, their nearest neighbour is six miles away, and when they're in the camp, suddenly they're sharing a tent and there are people next door. And so there are opportunities for friendship, which is... Not something that you expect in a concentration camp, but there are opportunities for friendship and there are choral societies, there are gardening clubs, there are schools. So I wanted to write about that in the past and also in the present. Willem, the boy who prefers books and animals to sports and to this very rigid macho idea of boyhood that exists still in South Africa. And um, Willem, you know, makes a friend, Geldenhus, in this contemporary camp. So I wanted to show the darkness and I wanted to show the light and I wanted to put them together so they would throw one another into relief. Remind us of some of the the background. So this is set during the... Well, the, the beginning of the book is set during the Second Ball War, so yeah. evidently there was a First Ball War. Yeah. Um, just a, a very quick recap of what the Ball War was about, because it is pretty much forgotten now. Well, I mean, we just don't, it's not taught in schools, you know. It's, it, it, was, it was not taught in schools, but it was a huge part of our national identity, um, you know, as, as, we, as we went into the 20th century. In many ways, it was the first modern war in lots of ways, because although it was fought on horseback, it's characterised as a sort of boys' own adventure. We had telegrams, we were able to find out what was happening on the front line, and basically the, the Britain and her entire empire, so there were troops from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, descended on these two tiny statelets, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal, because um, South Africa didn't yet exist as a country. And the supposed reason for the war was to preserve the voting rights of Outlanders, uh, foreign workers who were working in the gold and diamond mines. But the real reason was the gold and the diamonds. And, you know, this war was brutal. And we thought it would be over in three months. The British thought it would be over in three months. In fact, they were so confident that they thought it would be over in three months. They struck medals with the end date of the war on before the war was done. And they had to melt those medals down because the war went on for nearly three years. And the reason that they were losing, because, the, the, you know, the, the Boers, which just means farmer, um, were outnumbered 10 to 1. And they were not losing. In fact, at one point they were almost winning and it's because they had this new tactic called commando and they fought in tiny groups and they knew the landscape very well and they flouted lots of rules. They did fight under a white flag for surrendering and things like that. So they were, you know, really beating the, the British at their own game and so the British introduced this policy called scorched earth, which we use all the time like scorched earth policy but you know, it was named as such then but actually the ancient Romans did it and what they did was they burnt over 30,000 farms, so they went to these farms and you were given a choice you could sign an oath to Queen Victoria and give up the fight or you could not sign that oath um, and watch your farm being destroyed and the animals were slaughtered, their insides were thrown down the well so that Nobody who came after could get water. And salt was ploughed into the soil so nothing would grow. And we created this homeless nation of women and children and then we 
concentrated them into camps, which is where the origin of that expression comes from, concentration camps. Although it is used in the Spanish-American war as well, the reconcentrados, but in English it's concentration into camps. And so, you know, so that war went on for, you know, three years, the Second World War, and at the end of it, the empire won, and there were two republics which existed under British rule, and then the Dominion of South Africa came into being not long after. And it's a really interesting history as well because there was so much resentment against the British that when when it came South Africa's turn to decide which side of the war they were going to go on in the, in the Second World War, there was some real discussion about whether or not South Africa would support Britain. And in the end, they did. But if they decided not to, it could have been a really different historic outcome for the rest of the world with the with the Nazis in Africa. So, yeah, I mean, I found out so much. I could talk about it forever, the history, because <laughs> I, I spent such a long time in Gladstone's Library in Wales, this wonderful resource, and at the Imperial War Museum and all sorts of places. But the Boer War is everywhere. It's all over the country. And we forget about it because of the First World War. The First World War came along, so many more lives lost, so, so much greater and more horrific on a scale that it swept away the Boer War. But also, we were the good guys in the First World War um, and we were not the good guys uh, during the Boer War. Britain was hated throughout Europe. If you look at cartoons from the time, we're, we're seeing these, these bullies, we're killing women and children I mean it's really painful and horrible to see um, how we're portrayed and yeah, that, so that was our history but I mean if, you, if you're listening to this and you live in a, a sort of well, a village or a town or a city, there will be a Boer War memorial somewhere near you, in the churchyard probably you know, near in Brighton where I live there, there are loads of them. There'll be a housing estate probably with names like Maeve King Road, Kimberley Road, Baden-Powell Road. These are all named after people and places from the Boer War. And once you start to notice the Boer War, you see it everywhere. You realise this is everywhere. And Kipling and Conan Doyle really made their, made their become so famous because of the work that they did before and during the Boer War. And, I mean, as you said, we're, you know, we're very firmly, we, I mean, the British, are very yeah. firmly the bad guys in this war and and the the first story in this book of Sarah van der Waal and Fred Hussle in this camp is absolutely brutal and and horrific but we should also not forget that these of course were both colonial powers fighting over this this territory and there's obviously you know a a a huge racial element going on Mm. here as well so what's really interesting is what the sort of next part of the of the book goes on to look at basically how the legacy of the Boer War and and how the Boers suffered under the British mm. becomes an integral part of apartheid. Yeah, I mean it's so sinister how that all happens. So what you, what happens at the end of the Boer War is you have this group of people called the Beta Enders, the Bitter Enders, literally the Bitter End, the last people to surrender, and they are the people who the British hand power to over this new country, and they form the bedrock of this new country. They form the hardcore of the National Party, um, and their policy is apartheid. And the reason, there are a number of reasons for this. One of them is that until the Boer War, um, black people and white people, and those are really broad categories because there are so many categories of people within there, and I want the book to kind of break that down. But, you know, broadly in these states, lived and worked together. The Cape was very different. And they lived and worked together, and slavery had been abolished, but really there was no equality. Let's not pretend that there was equality, and let's not pretend that people enjoyed any kind of equality in the law, certainly. 
But what you get is, is these black people who are put in these camps and they've got no food, they've got no water, they've got no shelter. The British gave them nothing. They literally just threw them off trains and they said, by the side of the railway stations, and they said, well, because they're black, they're next to wild, they'll just live. They're like animals. And it was horrific. And the only work they could get was in the white concentration camps. So in these concentration camps, you have white people for the first time in their lives being told what to do or being watched over by black people. And this allied with the great loss of life at the time in the camps created this sort of sense of victimhood, which has been repurposed by Africana nationalists um, and the idea being that we must we must ensure this never happens again. So to this day you have groups in South Africa, the Sudlanders and the and the AWB, the RVB, who believe that they have to get South Africa back to before the Boer War with you know, but this time with black people and white people living completely separately. So yeah, so it's a very interesting line that goes from then to now, um, these cycles of violence that are repeated. But they're not necessarily repeated. They don't have to be repeated. There are individuals within these stories that make good choices. Um, there are individual Britons, British soldiers, you know, in the earlier part of the book who you see who are being good, who are trying, you know, there are always people trying to be good um, when a system is bad. Um, and I wanted to show that as well, because I think that if you can see that the people are making choices, bad choices, you can also make better choices you can try and do the right thing and I think that's that's what every reader who reads this book will hopefully think about is like what would I do you know in that situation what would I do to save my son what would I do to save myself tell me more about Sarah van der Watt then who's the character so the first part of the book is told in diary form she's writing basically what turns out to be a secret diary. Yes. She's having to keep hidden because it's one of the things, bizarrely, that the, the British ban any form of diary keeping. They also said, don't talk about the war, which I thought was quite an interesting precursor. They weren't allowed to talk about the war. Even though they were supposedly refugees, they, the women weren't allowed to talk about the war or ask about the war. Uh, and they weren't allowed diaries either. They also weren't allowed candles, which was particularly cruel because the women believed that a child couldn't die in the presence of light, and the British knew that, so to deny them candles really was to doom their children so they did all these strange rules but Sarah keeps a diary um, she keeps it for her husband Samuel um, Samuel's the son of a pastor they're very religious people and she keeps this diary because she's the daughter of farmers and he's exposed her to the joy of books and of reading and of writing and that's one of their shared passions he would go and find books and they would read aloud together and so he teaches her to read and write and they have this shared love of, of books and she writes a diary to tell him what's happening while he's away, basically. And she has no idea what is going to happen. She has no idea that... You know, she doesn't believe the rumours about what the British are doing. Even though she sees the smoke on the horizon and she sees the farms being burned, she just doesn't believe that it's going to happen because the English are Christians and she's a Christian and, and she thinks God just won't allow it. And so she keeps this diary about the preparations that are happening on the farm and about what's happening with, with the staff who, who work there with them and what's happening with her son Fred and the diary becomes increasingly fragmented it gets shorter she runs out of paper she's running out of ink 
she's being monitored and watched closely. She has to bury the diary at one point. And of course, the diary turns up much later in the book um, and plays a really critical, a really critical role. So, but there were diaries because Emily Hobhouse, this amazing British woman, went to South Africa and she exposed the concentration camps and she wrote about the horror of them. Um, she kept her own diaries. She also recorded the stories of women and children who were there. She came back and everybody just about in this country hated her. The Daily Mail ran a story with the headline Woman the Enemy. Nothing which is, changes. Which they're still running now, like but with about swimsuits. Um and, you know, Emily Hophouse was absolutely pilloried for this. Um she went on to play a big role in the First World War as well in protecting refugees there. She died, she was given a state funeral in South Africa. Her ashes are buried at the Anglo Boer War Museum in Bloemfontein, which is the site of the first concentration camp, which is where Sarah and Fred end up in the first part of the book. So so diaries are really important. And I think also they're not always trustworthy, right? The person who's writing the diary knows it's going to be read and they have to present a particular point of view. So it's doubtful whether Sarah's always honest, especially when she you know, she thinks her husband's going to be reading it. Well, especially so, as conditions deteriorate yeah. and they start having to basically make choices that yeah. obviously would never have been considered before. Yeah, I mean, the choice... Or friends that would never have been considered before, for instance. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she becomes friends with Helen, who's this scratty, dirty slutty woman who pokes her head through her tent flaps and sort of says, hello, who are you? What's going on? You know, and she's appalled by this woman to begin with. But they end up becoming friends and I absolutely love their relationship. Um, but she'd never have been friends with Helen outside this camp. She would have she would have looked down her nose at Helen. Even though she's not posh, she is not posh at all. She's, But, you know, she's literate and she looks after herself and she looks after her son. Unusual that she would only have one son and one child. These um, women usually had lots of children, but she didn't have children until late and she didn't ever think she was going to have children so Fred's very important to her and to Samuel too so I had great fun writing her diary and actually it really started to come to life when I made the decision to write it in the present tense that made a big difference because when it was historic it, it felt historic but now you're reading it hopefully you just feel like you're eavesdropping on her thoughts Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
you're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Damien Barr, and we're talking about his debut novel, You Will Be Safe Here. And Damien, as we've mentioned in the first half, the book moves gradually through the 20th century. We see Willem, the boy who you've already mentioned, who mm. the majority of the book is about. Um, we see his grandmother, Rainer, and his mother, Irma, featured early on in the 1970s at the height, you know, at the height of apartheid. But then mm. we come up towards the present day, and the story becomes about Willem at this camp that you've mentioned. And again, this is not, this is no summer camp. No, I mean, it, it's a pretty brutal place. And it's inspired by um, a real life camp that a real life boy, Raymond Boys, was sent to. Willem is born on what's called Freedom Day. It's the day that Nelson Mandela is elected. He's born on the day the country changes forever. So the country his mother's known and the country his grandmother, who's extremely close to, has known is gone as of that day. Um, but people have trouble letting go of the past and are fearful. And I want to try and show that so much hate comes from fear. And this camp um, that he sent to New Dawn is terrifying. Um, and it's not what his parents think it is. His parents think he's going to go there and learn to become a safari, you know, safari training guide and because he loves animals and stuff. And he'll you know, go off and get a job showing lions to tourists. And in actual fact, he gets there and very quickly realises that it's not what he was told it was. And he can't believe that his parents knew, you know, his mother, why would his mother send him to a place like this? It's run by the general. The general's a former soldier who genuinely believes that black people are going to rise up and kill all the white people in, in Uhuru in the Day of Reckoning. And he has to train these boys to survive that, not just to survive it, but also to guard the white farms um, against black invasion. And this is his genuinely held, deeply racist, disturbing belief that many people have. Many people hold this belief very dearly. So Willem is sent there and he is just brutalised from the moment he arrives by the other boys as much as by the general. And he gets called a moffy, which is a slang term, which here would translate as faggot or queer. And he gets called that because he doesn't fit and he's effeminate. And these camps exist. Many boys are are sent to these camps by their parents. They pay a lot of money to send them there. You can question whether or not the parents know exactly what kind of places they're sending their boys to. The camp that the real-life boy, Raymond Boys, went to has been closed, but we know from the police that there are other camps. And these camps exist in South Africa, but they also exist in other countries in the world. I mean, Gerard Conley's written about it, um, and Boy Erased about his experiences of conversion therapy in America. It's This camp isn't a, a straightforward conversion therapy camp. It's a sort of commando training facility, really. But homophobia is a really big part of it because you can't be a man and be gay in that culture. You can't be a man and be gay and be strong or, you know, have a family or do any of these things. So, so whether or not Willem is gay, um, he's certainly a victim of homophobic violence. And all the boys who are sent there are, whether whether they're gay or not, I mean, they don't fit the stereotype. So they're going to smash that square peg into that round hole, basically. As well as this ever-present fear of black uprising, yeah. black justice, we could, you know, we could also say, there's this sort of fantasy of a, a, a pre-lapsarian South Africa before yeah. everything went wrong, that the general 
is obsessed with and 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 I love how you, one of the ways you symbolised this was the um, the constant digging like the, the people in the past buried their their goods when the British were coming in the yeah in the Boer War and he has the boys basically digging for treasure yeah he does he this is the endless sort of Sisyphean labour that they have to do they're they're digging holes all over this camp um, and they have to be a certain size and a certain depth and you have to check off on a list when the hole has been dug and then you have to replace everything into that hole but if you turn up anything on you the general has to come and see it. It's like holds, you know. It's like the, it's like the young adult novel, um, but it's an incredibly dark version of that. I mean, it's not the lightest in itself, but um, but yeah. So he 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 believes really that the past is there, and if you can just dig deep enough, quite literally, you will find it. But what the book shows is that the past is not a place that you can visit. The past isn't constant. History is not constant they are constantly being renegotiated. You will have a different memory of today than I will. And, you know, everybody in this book, what we see as we get further from the events of Sarah and Fred in the camp is that that history is reinterpreted and changed and the characters, you know, they all believe their version of history, by the way, but their versions of history are different. And I wanted to really, really show that, particularly in South Africa where history is so contested. So, yeah, the the, the present-day camp, you know, the general the general's version of history is very warped and his vision for the future is equally warped by his history but it's well, I want to show that because I think it's very easy and lazy to dismiss people as evil I think we use that word all the time evil evil she's evil he's evil they're evil and people really are evil they may have beliefs that we hate um, which are abhorrent and rightly despised but they're not evil they're making choices and we have to under- try and understand um, where those choices are coming from in order that people are going to make different choices otherwise they're just going to keep being evil and we're going to keep being horrified and upset and doing all the things that we do so I just think I think it's very totalizing and simplifying and so I wanted to show the general's moral complexity as a character he is hateful he is terrifying he is a bully he is monstrous is he evil and where does if if he is where does where does that come from where does his behavior come from how much of it is shaped by his choices how much of it is shaped by his ancestors choices and what happened in 1900 so again i want readers to think about that as well about how much we're shaped by the decisions that other people have made you know long before we're born and i by the way i didn't know you know when i was writing the book what those things were i didn't sit down and plot this book out you know I, I just got to know the characters and I got to know their histories and suddenly saw these overlaps and thought oh right that's why she feels that way and of course she would do this in this situation and um, and so they do feel very real to me because of that. You mentioned the uh, the Gladstone Library but you also went to, to South Africa as part of the research for this book tell us about that mm. experience. So I got an Arts Council grant to to go there um, and do research for the book I'd never been before. So you set a book in South Africa and people are like, oh, you just did that because you wanted to go on a holiday. And it's like, it was not a holiday. That trip was not a holiday. But yeah, I went there for a, a trip in October, I think, 2014 or something like that, just under a month. And I wanted to go, I wanted to meet the parents, the, the mother of the boy who'd been murdered in real life. So I went and I met one of the boys and she very generously agreed to spend three days talking to me at her home and we went to the place where her son's ashes are and she introduced me to the policeman who'd investigated the case and that was just more painful than I can explain, really, when you're faced with a mother whose son has been just, not just lost, but destroyed, actually, physically destroyed. And to sit there and share that with her, 
um, was very powerful. And also to share her love and her hopes and what she wanted for her boy and why she'd sent him to that place. And I did also go to the place, the gates of the camp where her son had been sent. I've just written a big feature about this for The Guardian, about about the experience of going there. And, and in a strange way, how not extraordinary it was. A bungalow with kind of low walls. Then when you look more closely, there's an electric fence and there are other houses not that far away. And what it makes you realise is that terrifying things don't happen in the middle of nowhere. They happen when there are, where there are people and other people know. You know, um, makes me think about the the people who live near the concentration camps. You know, the people who live near Auschwitz, who who knew where their gardens and stuff. You know, what they could see from their houses. But anyway, that that was a really scary, scary, scary trip through very beautiful country. And I went to Bloemfontein to the site of the Anglo Boer War Museum and spent a lot of time talking to the curators there um, and looking at letters and diaries. Um, and just looking at the landscape as well, I would see from the car these ant hills everywhere. These ant hills, these red, bright red ant hills, and I just thought, what do they feel like? And I remember sort of stopping because they're domes and they're perfect. And I got out, and I thought that when I touched them, they would crumble and they were rock hard. You know, you could tap them. And it was then that I discovered that these ant hills were used by women during the Boer War as ovens. They were that's how hard they were. They could use them as ovens, and they were later used as the surface for. Tennis courts, would you believe it or not? So, so just going there and going and visiting the country and seeing the landscape and experiencing it was very powerful and did change the novel as well. And you can see why people fight over this country, you know, even now. It's so beautiful. It's sort of like Eden. I was in the Golden Gate National Park and I was looking out and I thought, this is Eden-like, you know, Everything grows there, incredible range of animals. And it's where the earliest bones of humanity are found. And you're like, well, of course people of course people started here because it's amazing. So and that is a theme that runs through the book, this idea of history and the past, and the past always being better. People always being convinced that the past is better, which I think is very dangerous and seductive. Um, because we can't, we don't know, right? Especially if history is written by the victors, we don't know what the past was like. Um, but it stops us thinking about the future. Yeah. So part of the reason I, I think I realised at the end that about the book that I wanted to write so much about the past was that I wanted to put it, air it for people to hear it and see. It. It's like you cannot heal it if you haven't heard it. And I want people to hear it and then try in some sense to to move on. Um, because we need to talk about these stories. And nobody's interested in the voices of women and children. When I looked at the mass grave site at the Boer War Museum, huge slabs of black marble, it's almost all the names of women and children. There are very few men's names on there, and you realise that in any conflict, women and children are the first to go. Albeit these women are strong, and they are survivors, and they are not passive, and they have their own strategies for survival. Nevertheless, it's mostly women and children's names on on that. And so I felt really a sense that I had a moral obligation to tell their stories in all their complexity. You know, not to beat a drum, not to wave a flag, especially not a flag, um, but to actually just try and say, this is what life was like for these people then. Did you know? Just to finish off then, can I get you to uh, read us a bit of the book? Oh, I'd love to do would. that. So I will read from the start. This is from the diary of Mrs. Sarah mm. Vandervaart, um, Mulberry Farm, near Ventersburg. Orange Free State, and it's the Tuesday, the 1st of January, just after breakfast. We know they are coming. We've watched the smoke rise for two weeks now, knowing they will soon be at our gates, the gates you promised to finish whitewashing when you returned. 
All day, every day, tidy pillars billow straight up into the summer sky. No breeze dares bother them. Day by day, farm by farm, the English draw closer. Even on Christmas morning we woke to smoke spooling across the sky like wool waiting to be wound. It cleared as you said prayers and we sat down to lunch. I still worry that pork was dry. The creels are only six miles east and when their big red barn goes up, the barn it took 20 men a winter to build, it'll be us next. The chair I'm sitting on, every berry ripening on the tree outside the window, every fruit, every tree, they will all go. I still struggle to believe the news that reaches even our half-painted gates. Soon, everything we've built in our ten years here will be gone. I've taken to rising even earlier so I can wander our five rooms alone. Remember when we had just one? I blink hard and press my eyelids together to engrave it all where I can always see it. I hope you remember it too, Samuel. I've often embarked on a diary with the new year and found my thoughts ran out long before the pages, but I'm resolved to keep at this. I'm setting these words down for us and for Fred. He's outside bothering Letty who was calling so I must go in a minute. I'm writing at our kitchen table where we sat and prayed and talked and laughed and worried all these married years. Every evening after dinner you tapped your pipe out and it left little scorches. Now I run my fingers over the marks, regretting every tut. I'll read this to you when you return victorious. Our cause is just. God will preserve you, Samuel. Remember Psalm 110. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. That day is coming. Now, I must go and see what Letty wants. So I've been talking to Damien Barr. We've been talking about his debut novel, You Will Be Safe Here, which is out now from Bloomsbury. Damien, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you so much. It was a privilege to talk to you. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.